Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Novak Djokovic made it as far as the final in Paris before losing from a setup to Holger Runa, 7-5 in the fifth. This is the kind of match that uh, we are so used to Novak winning against a younger opponent, lots of tight pressure moments, but it was actually uh, the 19-year-old Runa who was was more opportune, more clutch, three of three on break points for Runa, two of 12 on break points for Djokovic. What went wrong uh, for Novak in, in your eyes, Amy? This was an exceptionally tight match in terms of the point margins. I think, Joel, uh, Gil, you texted that uh, Novak actually won more points overall. And the interesting thing, I always like to look at the rally links because we know that um, in the majority, vast majority of matches, whoever wins zero to four wins the match. Well, that was not the case here because Novak won zero to four significantly, 67 to 50, but Runa won uh, five to eight and nine plus. Anything over uh, four shots, he won by a margin of 41 to 30. So that's really where the match was won. And I did think in the pivotal closing arguments of the match on some longer rallies, that's where Holger got Novak. And I was not wild about the Djokovic strategy. He seemed to be playing a little bit um, less aggressive, less willing to open up the court on certain shots. There was that put away volley where um, he had the open court and he went back the other way. It was kind of like he was asking the question of Runa saying, prove you can do this. And the answer to the question was, I can do this. Well, and we saw it earlier this year with the team Carlos Alcaraz. Now we've seen two teens make their way into the top 10. And I think Novak didn't know, like, when someone's this young and they're making the hockey stick growth in their game, how good is that really? You know, and obviously the genius of any great player, Novak is unsurpassed in this, is measuring and saying, how many more of those do you have in you? And then I think there came points to Novak, which is the side I'm supposed to attack now? Where am I supposed to go? I mean, I saw sometimes where Novak had the, a short forehand that he'd no, normally go down the line with to approach, and then he's going to go cross court. I think there's a lot of less um, less of his normal patterns that he was running because he's trying to figure, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And we watched this. I mean, he beat five top 10 players this week, Runa. That's yeah. hit the jackpot. I'm glad you, you made that point, Joel, because I don't know the answer either. Uh, Djokovic said before the match that, Runa reminds um, reminds me, wait, he reminds me of myself is what Novak said. And I agree in the respect that uh, I don't know if you should go to the forehand or the backhand. I don't know if, you know, his, his touch isn't bad. His serve isn't bad. His return isn't bad. His movement isn't a problem. Uh, this is a very, very complete player, Holger Runa. And uh, obviously 
it's nice for Novak to have some tactical focus to be able to to look to something to attack, but I don't really know that that clearly exists right now for Runa. I think Novak and some of those longer rallies did his typical thing, you know, like if Holger was serving, Novak would make the return, neutralize, and then go about the business of trying to open up the court. And I think Runa defended just exceptionally well on Runa's backhand side. So Novak continued to go there. And um, he was just getting a lot of depth back in the, in the backhand to backhand rallies. So, um, and, and to Holger's credit, he didn't give up. He double faulted on a match point, I think, and uh, he didn't let anything shake him. So this was from a mental standpoint, I thought this was um, a real, you know, welcome to the game kind of thing for Runa. Yeah, but in, the, in his favor. I mean, just mm -hmm. incredible. Some of these down the line backhands he was hitting were just amazing. And some of these passing shots that you see Novak trying to figure out transition. You contrast it, the guy a year ago, we talked about the final versus Medvedev, who'd beaten Novak at the US Open. But again, it's interesting to see over the course of this year with the emergence of Runa and Alcaraz. Hello, Medvedev. Hello, we remember you, you know? And it's just uh, interesting to see Novak again. And I'm going to speak to our three, all these questions they've been asking for 15 years. All these questions that people have to come up with answers in all sorts of ways, whether it's big forehands, big movement, big backhands. I mean, and we're going to be seeing over the next five years some quality tennis from a great many players. I'm not saying we're going to see um, we're going to see one of them win 15 majors, but the quality of play we're going to see among the top seven, eight players in the world in the next seven years is going to be phenomenal. I mean, this Runa is very impressive. Yeah, Runa and Alcaraz pretty similar in the in the completeness and how many strengths they have. Um, I, I also thought that Holger's backhand stood out. I thought it was better than Novak's in the match, which is saying a lot. And uh, mostly that's because not only is the drive really good, really hard uh, and consistent, but the the drop shots and the short chips uh, that Runo was able to produce to, I think, uh, kind of gain that small edge in the rallies, in the exchanges by by mixing things up very, very effectively, sometimes using the slice to defend as well. Uh, that's what you have to do, right? Against Novak, like if if you're just hitting drive after drive after drive and you're giving him rhythm and on an indoor hard court, you're not taking the ball out of his strike zone, he's not going to miss. Uh, he's a machine. You're in so much trouble. So I think what I liked most about Runa's performance is that he uh, he really did throw a lot of different things Novak's way. And, you know, he had the sheer power and the sheer firepower. He also had the variety. They hadn't played since the U.S. Open in, two, in 2021, right? And so there's yep. the one where it's like, you know, oh, yeah, we played a while ago and you got that set off me, but I pretty much beat you pretty easily. And then and Novak's gone about his business over the last 14 months being Novak and a great player that is. In the meantime, here's Rune. It's like, whoa. Who are you? I mean, have you have you ever gone have you ever gone a year without playing someone who made an improvement? I mean, and you see them improve. It's like, I mean, the improvement in Runa over the course of this year is just incredible. And I think that took Novak completely by surprise. Like, particularly once that second set got underway, it's like, wait but a it, second. Even that U.S. Open match was not a bad match. Um, Runa took a set. I I want to say in a tie break, and he set, cramped. Yeah. He cramped in that match. And I remember the overall, you know, thing was this kid is cocky 
and um, he was plan acquitting himself very, very well. And if he hadn't cramped, he might have been on to something. That was sort of the takeaway. So he has improved greatly. Um, I still thought that Novak had the edge in fitness, which is really interesting. Um, obviously, it, it didn't, you know, it wasn't didn't break the match. But there were a couple of points where um, Runa was huffing and puffing and Novak was just like, ah, fresh as a daisy. And the chair umpire was very generous with the, the shot clock. And um, strategically, Runa did take a, a uh, warning late in the match, which was really good strategy and very smart. But uh, it, interesting for the age gap, I still thought that Novak appeared to be a little more fit. Although he did seem to injure himself somewhat, perhaps a, a little uh, quad pull or something, something like that, because he called for the trainer. Well, Novak's been in this situation oodles of times, and here's Runa. There's there's the the literal physical fitness of having played a lot of matches, and this is the most uh, match heavy year of Runa's life. And then there's also the whole adrenaline nerves thing. I mean, what do you think? Mm -hmm. You think it's going to take Runa twelve or sixteen hours to get to sleep? After this win, <laughs> he's going to be and, and and Novak. It's like okay, all right, business. Get ready. Go back. Train. This happened. On to the next one. And then mm -hmm. and Rune, it's just like where I'm. I, I'm in this whole other airspace now. I, mean, I just cracked the top ten. Well, that's been the the big thing for Holger has been the fitness. That's been the problem from from day one. Um, he's had to work really hard on it. Uh, relaxing during matches because he he thought that nerves were kind of an issue, making him cramp in all these big matches. Right. I don't I don't know exactly what he figured out, but he he seemed to figure it out. It's now four straight weeks, uh, four straight events rather, uh, where he's made finals and the the gas tank doesn't seem to go. You know, but he's one of those classic nineteen year olds where being nineteen doesn't help his fitness; it it hurts his fitness, which is normal. Um, because he's going to get stronger. He'll be stronger when he's 21 than he is now. Agreed. Um, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Well, look at like Alcaraz too, but these guys have so much, they're burning so much fuel. And it's interesting. I mean, Nadal had some of that as a teenager, but Nadal didn't have as versatile a game. At, and so he was, he was the young, the young grinding defender. And now these guys are playing like, you know, youthful and all court tennis reminds me a little bit of uh, Shapovalov a few years ago, although he didn't become as as good. But that's just burning fuel and energy and forehands and whacking balls. And it's like, yeah, they got to learn to kind of like manage energy so you can. That doesn't mean conserve it; just manage it so you can play well on Sunday and then and then play well again on Tuesday, the way we know Novak could. It's also pretty interesting that I know Holger is using um, a data guy, uh, Mike James, and I know that Mike has been working with Holger for, I don't know, maybe a year. Um, and he, he, Holger has chosen a very wise sort of coaching situation. He's got, you know, his main head coach, and then he's working with Mike under the Murata Glue house. So uh, it's working for him right now. And and Novak has his data people. So it was like a real chess match from a, a tactical standpoint. Yeah, because a lot some great rallies, some great rallies and movements. I mean, that was really that was really um, a lot of fun. Tennis picked up a lot in the second set. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good team. His mother manages him. His mother's the manager. Uh, Lars Christensen, his coach, has been has developed his game like from seven years old. 
and is still his coach. And then you have big, big PMAC in there. Um, who's joined the team in the last couple of weeks, who seems to be just his thing. I feel like when, when Murata glue, um, comes to, to coach someone, he tends to get them to play more aggressively. Serena, Halep, Runa. I feel like his thing is like, I need you to crush the ball and trust yourself and be confident and impose yourself and use your weapons. That seems to be the thing. Now, Joel, are, are you going to say that it depends on the player and that you wouldn't? I think first of all, I think that's what, high level tennis is, but I think with Serena, I think with Serena was a little bit more impose yourself, but you don't have to hit for winners, make them deal with your ball repeatedly. There's a little difference. I think Hal would be different, but I think that's a good look. Um, Paul Anacone told me this years ago, he said at the lower levels, it's about managing errors, you know, and, and, and managing, making sure your weakness isn't too exposed and then you skills, but at the higher level is about maximizing offense. So how do you get whoever that player is, whatever their array is, how do you get them to maximize that thing the way a coach would say, let's say Tsitsipas, how do we get you to make sure you can play as many big forehands as possible? And how do you move, construct points? And yeah, and I and I think that's that's a completely uh workable, high-level world-class approach. Yep. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Um, Dmitry Tursunov also has has taken that approach with a lot of his players who have just skyrocketed um, on the WTA side. Uh, can we we got to address though Djokovic's missed opportunities? I don't really have an explanation for it, and uh, I'm curious if if Amy you have any kind of theory about why you can make a very painful montage in this match. Uh, love all in the second set. Djokovic had love 40 to go up an early break in the second set. He had an overhead. He missed a second serve return in the middle of the net. He had a backhand passing shot that looked routine. It's like he didn't, he doesn't break serve there. He obviously has uh, all the break points as Runa is trying to serve for the match at six, five in the third set. Uh, some of those were, were some poor mistakes by, by Novak as well. Um, it, it was a uncharacteristically unclutch match. Uh, from Djokovic, even though there was a lot of good tennis and he seemed like the better player in a lot of stages, it just, there wasn't the clutchness there. Well, I think it goes to what the three of us have been talking about for a long time off air, which is what really is a forced error and what's an unforced error. And I think Runa forced a lot of these mistakes, even though in the scorecard, they'll go as unforced with his defense and his um, particularly on the backhand side, um, not his speed and, and not willing to give up in these points. And then, you know, a routine forehand, you suddenly think that you've got to make it more perfect because this guy could, could get to it or an overhead, 
you have to place it just perfectly because this guy, if you don't place it perfectly, he's going to get to it and shove it back down your throat. Well, the Novak overhead, uh, longstanding for a great, for who, for one of the greatest players ever, not quite the A of a greatest player ever. The way, I mean, I think of uh, Rafa's overhead, of Pete Sampras. It's interesting how those things happen because when you see, tell me you don't take a little breath when someone throws up a lob to Novak. You know, it's like, and you see he's sometimes, yeah. And then Runa gets back in the point. Yeah, there's several of that. There's several of that. That one, yeah, is love, first game of the second set, love 40. That's that's the time. But Runa, he covered the court so well. And when he was in those positions, he hit deep shots. I mean, a lot of good shots. And and for a court that I've been told was playing fast by one of my coach sources, it didn't seem so fast. I mean, it's like the way that, the way Runa was covering it. I mean, he was... On they so played a time. lot of short points, though. I, yeah. It seemed fast to me. They played a lot of quick bang bang points. Oh yeah, rap absolutely. But yeah, I yeah. mean, it's intriguing. It's intriguing to see the way um, styles are developing. The styles are developing, and how Runa. You look at both. I'm seeing them as teens, as both Runa and Alcaraz. I mean, this reminds me, if I may, of something I had a chat with Jim Courier five years ago. I wrote about this yesterday, and I said how. Uh, I was getting, I was about five years ago, I was in that view. Well, guys over 30 are filling up the ranks. The game's more physical. It's hard for um for a teen to make their way in. And, uh, you know, how's that going to be? They're going to have to wait and get stronger. And Curry said, you know, no, if they're meant to be great, they're going to be great. And of course, he had Agassi, Chang, and Sampras, all who did great things in their teens. So he was had some experience with that. But I think in a bigger picture, he was saying that. And you look at that, like if someone's, it, it shows you, I wrote about it, tennis development is less of a factory and it's more of like a series of individual artisans scattered around the world. And so along comes someone from Denmark, someone from Spain. Uh, they're, it, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I, um, on my own question, uh, I'll play devil's advocate. I can't give Runa as much credit as that, although I think he played a phenomenal match. On some of these mistakes by Novak, I just think uh, it was one of those rare, you know, one out of 10 matches where he didn't have it um, in some of these moments. And I, I you know, and it's, it's, it's not an explanation other than the fact that you don't play your best match every single match. And I just look at like one of the break points that you may remember, Runa's all the way off, you know, off the court, and Djokovic has one of his best shots, which is the backhand drop shot, right? And he's got tons of open court. And I, I he either hits the bottom of the net or the ball bounces before the net. And I, I know Runa's is fast. I, I get that he's fast, but that's the kind of thing that he, you know, if if you're in Novak's head, you gotta make it. You have to make it. And it's weird that he didn't. And I, I just think it was it was one of those days. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts I, on that particular point? I, I the one for me, I, I I'm I don't want to say something and comment on that point if it's not the exact one that I'm thinking about. The one for me was Novak having the open volley, forehand volley to the ad court. And it was late in the match, and instead of just slamming that thing um he went he tried to go back behind runa or short angle and and he just you know he just hit something really flat and um the the uh 
point continued and Runa ended up winning the point. I know the side you're thinking of. Yeah, and he got kind of. Let me say it was it was three one deuce three one deuce. Okay. So Djokovic had the break at this point. Yeah. And this is part of the reason he lost it. Go ahead, Joel. Well, and so this gets to a dialogue that's a fun thing that we've been chatting about a lot that Amy's been helping me see. So all if all errors are situational, then that's important too, is the situation, is the time of it, because it's, he's not going to miss that if he's up 5-1, 30 level, or maybe he will, but the error, errors occur in situations. Errors occurs in moments. I mean, the awareness of the score and the situation. And so is it forced? Is it unforced? Is it, I mean, we've talked about this and it's really fun to think about. I mean, Amy, you've helped me kind of explore this about, hmm, is there any such thing as an unforced error? Really? I mean, he, you're on the court with someone for 90 minutes and I'm, I've, you've, this person has made you aware of their movement and their skill the whole match. I mean, that was, I mean, again, I'm not, my credit to Runa isn't for like saying he's going to beat Novak the next seven times they play. My credit to him is for just the way he, he stayed in this match and this whole, this whole year for him has been amazing. He was outside the top hundred when the year started. Yeah, he had, he had seven or eight. I tweeted it and now I'm forgetting which is the exact number. Seven or eight tour level wins before the year. And uh, he comes in and he's gone on this incredible, incredible run. Um, yeah, I, to me, if if pressure forces a missed overhead or something or a missed easy volley, and, and Amy, you're spot on, I think this is the worst shot of the match for Novak, that forehand volley. Uh, it was, it was I don't know what he was doing with that uh, because it wasn't even a drop volley. He hit it deep to the corner that Runo was recovering from, uh, which was a... It was, yeah, it was wild. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah, if the pressure, like to me, we can analyze that. We can say this is what caused the unforced error. To me, you still need to put it in a separate bucket from the shot where Runa hit a great inside-out forehand and Djokovic uh, was open stance in the corner and tried to make a passing shot and missed. To me, we should separate those two things, but I, I think we're going to flesh out this conversation in full uh, another time. Amy, is there one more thing you want to add? Well, this this is really just a general observation. And that is that what I see bubbling up with a lot of these young guys is that the volley is starting to come back in vogue. In other words, it's not like it was back in the Sampras era. But if you've got volley skills, um, that's going to give you a slight advantage over some of the other people like Medvedev who don't have volley skills, which Joel, you mentioned Medvedev earlier. Um, and I just see like the trend bubbling back up again. And especially in the young guys that volleying is coming or at least having that skill is coming back into vogue, um, maybe trending away from the strictly baseline tennis. As a result of the questions asked by our three, because the real, it's like, for example, with Novak, my sense is that the volley was an app. I mean, that, that he, he learned it. It was something he learned to make better in the middle of his career. But then these younger players are saying, well, wait a second, I need to do this in the developmental stages. And I think to me, that's 11 to 15 years old. That's when it really has to become more embedded. And you see the way people like Alcarez and um, and Runa are much more um, much more comfortable at the net in that area. Where you see with Novak, it's it's learned, it's studied. He's become a, a very fine volleyer. We watched him serve in volley in the final last year. But we see, and then when it's tight, 
kind of still a second language. And that's what I find what's refreshing about this to bring it to the whole world. Yeah, they're human too. I mean, Novak did. I mean, you know, I think everybody when they do different things. Like I know, I know some people when they get tight, they go too big. Some people go too small. I go too cute. I go too <laughs> cute. I know that. And I know like that's the type of thing that I would do stupidly instead of like, okay, high volley, open court, commit, go. But instead, oh, I'm going to be cute here because I'm not, I don't have enough faith in, in my free swing, right? Instead of letting right. it go. Because right. Novak would never do that. He, he doesn't do that with his backhand. He doesn't do that with his backhand. He doesn't try to get too cute with his backhand. He knows I can just line it this way. So it's, it's, fun. it's interesting how human all these folks are that way. Someone was in the, uh, the building in Paris at the match, switching gears here to kind of an external topic. Um, they were in the building. They were filming Novak's box and um, they basically saw uh, Uli, the, the physio, uh, was mixing up uh, Novak's drink, Novak's like uh, electrolyte mixture. And someone next to the right of Uli saw this person filming them and instructed people to block Uli as he was making uh, and mixing the beverage. And there's a lot of uh, questions swirling around, obviously, about, you know, what is there to hide here? And obviously, um, I, I think it's something that our audience will be happy um, to, to get our take on. Um, so, Amy, I want to give you the floor. What do you think happened there as, you know, if you could try to provide, I guess, um, your, your kind of view on, on what was going on? Well, you got to understand the world that I grew up in is innocent until proven guilty. So it it doesn't really occur to me that something untoward was happening. But the word that comes to mind is ham handed, because I think the people around Uli started acting in a really ham handed way that was completely unnecessary. I doubt Novak would have wanted them to shield in this way and really call attention to something that didn't necessarily need calling attention to. Uh, as long as Novak is passing all the tests and from what we know, 100% he is, um, I I do think that a player does have some right to privacy. We don't have to have a hundred percent transparency. That's kind of a, a buzzword um, transparency in today's world. But look, um, I have a mix that I use and it has some green tea and it has a little bit of salt and some sugar and some B vitamins. And I don't want to tell my opponents the name of this product. So why why would, you know, Novak want to advertise exactly what his salt mix is either and have the world know. So I do think he has a right to privacy on that front. I just think that those people around were acting in such a bizarre and ham-handed way that it called attention to something that probably doesn't need that much attention. Yeah, you look at the whole growth of the player teams. <laughs> Once upon a time, they had no one watching. And I remember for many years, maybe one person. And and then for years, they uh, at Wimbledon, they shared the same box. They'd be sitting right in front of each other. You know, there's there's Borg's people and there's McEnroe's people, right? 
like right behind each other. Now it's like they have like a you know, little pre-qualifying. You know, it's like, did you make it to the round of 16 of the player box? And so it gets to some of this, uh, the etiquette of the people who are in there and where they're watching and being protective and the player. And you're right, it was like a business as usual thing. He's he's mixing a drink, whatever. And then of course, we're in the world today where people people shoot things and then people say things and they wonder. And it's, it's, it is like all this little news making. Yeah, yeah. strange. So look, uh, first of all, everyone's like, what's in that drink, right? And it's just like, look, what is in that drink? Stuff that enhances performance, just like salt, just like sugar gives you energy. Caffeine blocks the receptors that tell your brain you're tired. Uh, that's why, you know, this idea of is it enhancing? Well, yes, as is Gatorade. So um, it, it's it's a very look complex topic as a whole, right? With, with how, what athletes put in their body to make themselves better. Uh, but yeah, there's very little reason to, uh, to really assume that, that anything is going on and this deserves attention other than the fact that, um, if you are an airline pilot and you are making a safety announcement to your passengers, uh, you should not put too much emphasis on the word unlikely. In other words, when you say <laughs> in the unlikely case of a water landing, the life vests will appear under your seat. <laughs> Don't emphasize unlikely. It's going to make everyone uncomfortable. And in, in this case, uh, everybody shielding the, the drink uh, mixture was uh, just made some people feel uncomfortable. And by the way, I think the reason it happened, if I were to guess, is because uh, people don't like to be filmed and some people act funny when they're being filmed. And that's, uh, that's what I think happened here. Yeah, that is a great analogy. And, <laughs> and I, I would say that I would take it a step further that these people, and I don't know, I don't know if they're part of Novak's team. Some of them I didn't even recognize these people acted in such a way that to go to your analogy, Gil, it would be like the pilot saying, in the <laughs> unlike, <laughs> unlikely event. Uh, I mean, it was so bad. And and I'm I'm actually kind of just embarrassed for those people. <laughs> well, that's why the player maybe the player and their team should create like a like a like an etiquette guide for sitting in the box. You know, it's like one of the guy one of the things is basically you 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 know, you should mostly it's better to be more poker faced than expressive yes yeah but there should be this whole little rules about that because it's kind of like this whole thing with these whole i mean the teams it's I, I think it's fine i don't i'm not thinking it should be small i'm thinking it's it's great they have these pit crews and they have different people but they all have to have their kind of role and what they what they what they do and how they comport themselves last topic um and then we will wrap things up I uh, want to talk about this time of year and and I guess how we look at this Paris Masters because there's been uh, a lot of examples in the past of certain things that players have done and runs that they've gone on at the end of the year, um, such as Jack Sock, who surged into the top 10, Grigor Dimitrov uh, won the, the year-end championship, got up to uh, inside the top five, um, and... Even like on the women's side, we saw last year, Annette Contivate, uh, this time of year, indoor hardcore goes on an absolute tear, uh, the kind we just saw from Holger Runa. So I think uh, from we can talk about it first from, from Runa's perspective and then from Djokovic's perspective. Uh, what, how should we interpret results at this time of year? Should we alter the way that we think about them, Joel? 
this time of year to me is what a former pro called the point safari. And it's a little bit like the time for the, for, for the top, top players. It's kind of like, if you do well, that's great. If you don't, that's okay too, because it doesn't really hit. No one's going to look back at, at um, Nadal and say he never won the Paris masters. You know, it's like, this is, there's a certain kind of like a, a freebie elective course. However, for the other players, it's a time to gather some points. So, and, and do, and, and make some track headway. Look at, uh, look at Felix Ojeda-Lenassim. Look how well he's done this fall. And that's a good time to generate wins. So, but you couldn't ask for something more polarized than how this Paris results, how each of them will look at these results. I mean, really, this has been like a breakthrough, a, an exclamation point to a breakthrough year, five top tenors, win a Masters 1000, hit the top 10. Wow. And Novak is like, okay, all right, okay. I, 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 it's all good. Let's see. What's, what's, what's the deal with Australia? You know what I mean? He's got a whole different vision of it all. And that's all right. They each have their different views and how it's going to be a Novak. He's looking at the year end championship. And of course he hopes to play well and win that, but he's like, it's nothing to get hung about for a player like Novak at this time of year, but for a younger player making way up the ranks. Hey, let's, let's do something here. The vast majority of the season is played outdoors. And despite John McEnroe wanting us to have a grand slam indoors or something, he said um, that? I, I don't know. He wants some sort of big something indoors. He, I know did he has said that see, before. Did you ever see McEnroe play indoors? I haven't. Why. You'll know why. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I too. I, I like the elements taken out of it. I like playing it uh, indoors so I don't have to worry okay. about sunscreen, wind, sun, any of that. I'm, I'm a I big want locust. I want locust and plague. I want, <laughs> I want wind. I want, I want frogs. I want all sorts of things flying around the court. <laughs> Um, I, I think you're spot on, Joel. Um, nobody is going to remember this if Runa doesn't go on to do something at the Grand Slams. Uh, however, these players who are doing well um, have, you know, comported themselves well because they're now going to be in better position to do well at the Slams because they are going to be able to get higher seats. So it, it's like a little... Um, hidden thing that that could give them a little boost but the public at large and even some that are super super nerdy tennis fans aren't going to be talking about this in three or four months i think for djokovic he'll look at at this uh post us open stretch and feel just kind of good about it uh because he's played a ton of good tennis uh crazy amount of winning and he'll look at the Paris final. Wow, that was weird that, you know, that got away from me. Uh, disappointing loss. But in the big picture, things are really good. I think Djokovic will have that perspective. Uh, for for Runa, um, it, it feels a little bit different to me than some of the other surprise champions we've had in Paris. And I'll even throw in, like, Filip Krajinovic made the final. Um, I'll throw in the fact that it's the only Masters that David Ferrer has won, even though it's crazy that he didn't win one on clay because because of nadal being too good um <laughs> but yeah you know runa there's not a lot of oh and hatchinoff i should add right mm -hmm. hatchinoff had the paris thing and jack sock yeah who who i mentioned earlier and yeah. and uh didn't hatchinoff beat djokovic in that did. one yeah, and had, and who said. who won their match this year that they played yeah i mean it's just kind of it it Unfortunately, it's a great tournament, but it it becomes kind of a footnote. Yep, uh, I just don't think Runa will will actually end up in in that uh, group uh, because I, I just 
I can't really poke any holes in in what he's doing right now at just 19, meaning not, and I'm not talking about results. I'm talking about the game. Like with Hatchinov, you had this wild forehand and you're like, is that going to work? It, it worked. So I guess it might work, but is that going to work? And then with Sock, you have like a really extreme backhand weakness. Uh, Dimitrov, there's the, the health issues. And, you know, we had a lot of sample size. Like, I just don't think Runa is going to really fit into that. Well, Runa won three tournaments this year as a teenager. So there's a whole other arc of impressive. And I, what I like is that he's um, not just winning matches, he's winning tournaments. And I think it's a big thing. I find it, to me, just like at, the, at one level, I'm big on year-end number one. I think winning tournaments early in the career is a significant marker of, 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 of a path you're on other than that's different than great wins or upsets or runs or quarters or semis. I mean, that you're winning, you're going the distance, you know, and, and particularly when you look at what this, what this field is that he beat five top tenors and in the first round, he fought off match points versus Stan Rarinka, who I know is past his prime, but still. So three time major champion. So that's it's quite a week. Next week, we will preview Turin on three. Novak Djokovic will be there. Rafael Nadal is probable for it. He, he did not guarantee it, but uh, I, I would put it at 90%. That's my crystal ball. Uh, no Carlos Alcaraz, unfortunately. He has withdrawn. Uh, but that'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.